Heavenly Father, we beseech thee. I kneel before you as a member of this age-old craft, praying to you for guidance as I am on a journey. A journey for more light, but more especially light that has been lost, forgotten, or hidden among the ages gone by. The light that connects us with our very meaning and informs us of our purpose. Light locked deep within our past, beyond lips that no longer speak, and paths forgotten, no longer traveled. Aid me in my pursuit, Lord, for historical light. Hey everybody, welcome back to Historical Light, an independent Masonic show focused on the historical events and aspects within Freemasonry. As always, I'm your host, Brother Alex Powers, and I want to thank you for joining us again. Today is episode number 20, the big 2-0, finally made it. And I do want to apologize right off the bat, I feel like I've been doing this a lot lately, but this fall season is really getting the best of me, and once again, I'm a little under the weather. So please, give me a little slack today, I do apologize, my voice is a little off and shortness of breath and all, but hey, show's got to go on, so let's do it. It's going to be a great one though. Uh, we do have the infamous brother Bob Cooper from the Grand Lodge of Scotland, it's bring us some great history from over on that side and it's going to be it's going to be good all around so let's go ahead and jump into it like we always do checking with our friends over at masonrytoday.com and see just what happened in masonic history today all right this is going to be fun on a stuffy nose today in masonic history john jellicoe first earl jellicoe passes away in 1935 he was a british admiral Jellicoe was born December 5th, 1859 in Southampton, Hampshire, England. He was educated at the Fieldhouse School in Rottingdean, and at the age of 13 he joined the Royal Navy and was assigned as a cadet on board the HMS Britannia. Starting in 1874, Jellicoe was assigned as a midshipman on board the HMS Newcastle in the Mediterranean Fleet. He served on a variety of ships in the Mediterranean as he moved up through rank. During the Egyptian War, he was in charge of a rifle company in Ismailia, Egypt. In 1883, Jellicoe qualified as a gunnery officer, and the following year, he was assigned to the gunnery school on board the HMS Excellent. In 1905, Jellicoe became Director of Naval Ordnance. By this time, he had been promoted to the rank of Captain. He had also been assigned command over various seagoing commands. On March 8th of 1906, Jellicoe was made aide-de-camp to King Edward. He would continue as aide-de-camp until the passing of King Edward in 1910. During this time, he worked to improve technology in the Royal Navy. Specifically, he pushed for a fire control table. This was a mechanical computer which could calculate firing solutions for the warships. He also made third sea lord and controller of the Navy after being promoted to the Rear Admiral in 1907. After the passing of King Edward, he was promoted again to Vice Admiral and made Second Sea Lord in 1912. In 1914, Jellicoe was promoted to Full Admiral. He was then assigned to the command of the Grand Fleet, a fleet of ships that was created specifically for World War I. When the First Sea Lord and the First Lord of the Admiralty Winston Churchill came into a conflict which resulted in both men being removed from the positions, Jellicoe took up sides in the matter coming down on the side of the First Sea Lord. This would be the beginning of the long-standing issues between Jellicoe and Churchill. As the commander of the Grand Fleet, there were no major issues, although there were also no major victories. This was upsetting to the British public. Some historians say that Jellicoe was not aggressive enough. Others blame the actions of the subordinate officers. Regardless of which is correct, Jellicoe was promoted to the First Sea Lord in 1916. As First Sea Lord, Jellicoe was faced with the serious U-boat issue that was essentially starving Britain. Jellicoe had been First Sea Lord for only a month when Lloyd George became Prime Minister. 
From the start, he was encouraged, mostly for political reasons, to remove Jellicoe as first Sea Lord. After several starts and stops in the process of removing, again mostly due to politics, Lloyd George sent him a letter asking for his uh, resignation in December of 1917. Jellicoe, at first, was going to refuse, then decided it was in the best interest of the Royal Navy. In 1919, Jellicoe was promoted to the rank of Admiral of the Fleet, which is the highest rank in the Royal Navy. A year later, in 1920, he was made Governor General of New Zealand. Jellicoe passed away November 20th, 1935. While serving as Governor General of New Zealand, Jellicoe also served as the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of New Zealand. All right, well, thank you to our friends once again over at masonrytoday.com for another great article. If you haven't done so, check them out over their website and on social media so you can keep up with them and their great articles they put out on a daily basis. Now, now that we're through that, let's go ahead and jump over and pay the bills. This episode of Historical Light is brought to you in part by our sponsor, Masonic Revival. If you haven't checked them out before, do so today after the show at MasonicRevival.com. You'll find a great source there for your Masonic lapel pins, bow ties, neckties, and much more. And if you use our promo code, which is all caps, one word, HLIGHT, you'll get free shipping on your entire order. So make sure you check them out today and get some great merchandise. The show is also brought to you in part by viewers like you. If you like what we do here and want to see us grow and continue over time, uh, you can as well support the show through the means of PayPal. You can go to our website, historicallight.com, click on the Support Us tab up in the main menu bar, and you can contribute either one time or in a monthly donation uh, to the show, and we definitely appreciate everything you're willing to offer. Uh, it helps pay for the website hosting, the audio podcast hosting, and equipment upgrades. Uh, we've been able to get a little bit of that, so we're we're going to be doing some in-person interviews coming up here soon, and we uh, appreciate you guys making that happen and keeping us around. So thank you so much for keeping the lights on. It is much appreciated. All right, well, bills are paid and lights are on for another week, so that's always a good thing. Uh, now, I mentioned last time in the episode that Today was going to be episode number 20. It's going to be an important day, a milestone for us. So we're going to do a giveaway. So if you want to get in on that, get on that list to be part of that giveaway, stick around to just after the interview, and we'll get details to you on where you need to go to get on the list. Um, for now, though, we're going to jump over to the interview portion of today's show, and that's going to be with Brother Bob Cooper from the Grand Lodge of Scotland. Now, please bear with us. We were you know, doing a Skype interview over to Scotland. We did not get the greatest connection. Uh, audio quality is not horrible, but the video does freeze up quite a bit. I've got to pre-warn you about that. If it kills you too much, uh, you can definitely jump over to the podcast version and listen to it there. Um, but bear with us. You know, We're at the mercy of technology, so what can we do? But let's jump into the episode or to the interview portion of the episode, and I hope you guys enjoy. We'll see you right after. Hey everybody, welcome back to Historical Light. We're very pleased today to have on the show Brother Bob Cooper, who's the curator for the Grand Lodge of Scotland. And uh, Brother Bob, if you don't mind, I'll go ahead and hand it over to you if you want to introduce yourself about your background. Sure, will do, Alec. Um, well, uh, uh, firstly, thank you very much for inviting you, uh, inviting me onto the show. Um, I've been uh, employed by the Grand Lodge of Scotland now for coming up for 24 years as the curator. So I look after the Grand Lodge of Scotland's museum and library, uh, and that includes uh, the archives and some very fascinating old documents, which we'll probably get around to talking about very shortly. Um, in terms of, of uh, my Masonic membership, I became a Freemason uh, 35 years ago. Uh, when I joined uh, the Lodge of Light, 1656, Edinburgh. Uh, I subsequently affiliated to and became master of Lodge Edinburgh Castle, number 1764. And thereafter, I affiliated to and became master of Lodge Sir Robert Morey, 1641. And that name is significant. I'll explain why later. Um, and the premier lodge of research in Scotland. And also, um, uh, I had the great pleasure to uh, be installed as master of Lodge Quater Coronati in London, which, of course, as you uh, know, is the premier lodge of research in the world. 
and uh, so yes, I've been very involved in all sorts of aspects of uh, Masonic research, Masonic history, but I'm particularly interested in uh, early ritual uh, philosophy and the esoteric content um, of uh, early Masonic ritual and Masonic references generally. As well as that, I'm also very interested in other non-Masonic esoteric societies uh, that exist or existed in Scotland. And that will be a, a, an important uh, point to make later about the existence alongside Freemasonry in Scotland, the origins uh, which I'm almost certain spring from the very uh, different uh, socio-economic cultural differences uh, that Scotland has from virtually anywhere else. So um, that's a, a, a very brief uh, background to me. Um, I don't know if you've got any other uh, particular questions, but that's the basics, if you like. Wonderful. Well, I did want to touch in on, do you have any family history um, going back within Freemasonry or appendant bodies? Well, the short answer is no, uh, none whatsoever, none that I've ever been able to, to establish. Um, that, that in some, some ways is a bit unusual in Scotland because a lot of people, a very large number of people, join because of family connections. Um, there are some lodges, particularly rural lodges, and I'm quite sure it will be the same in many parts of the United States, where you can trace father, grandfather, great-grandfather, all sort of members of the same lodge. I don't have that kind of connection. My, my motivation came from uh, the desire to understand the history and the philosophy uh, of the craft, which was completely different than any of my teachers and professors um, would, would tell me about. So uh, it really was sort of curiosity that brought me to, to, to the door of Freemasonry. Very well. Well, we're e extremely glad that you uh, made that leap into Freemasonry. I know you said uh, you kind of got turned on because of looking into the history of it. What what was it that actually turned your eye to it? What made you notice Freemasonry and ultimately want to join and become a part of that? Well, um, my academic background is in history and uh, the history that um, the craft or commentators on the craft, and again, that's another subject we perhaps uh, would like to touch on. Um, the commentators on the craft were giving a very different history of my country uh, compared to um, the history of my country as taught in the academic world. And that, in some ways, that's kind of disturbing because if you're brought up um, uh, being taught about Scottish history and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, left of field comes this huge amount of uh, historical uh, information that is completely at variance with what the mainstream academia will teach you, then, you know, it, it's uh, for people like me, it's pretty serious stuff, you know, so very challenging. And so that's why I decided that I, ne I needed to invest. I did so um, from outside of the craft, and then I thought, well, I'll become a member and investigate it from inside the craft. So I have the advantage of having looked at this from, uh, from a Masonic and non-Masonic point of view. Wonderful. Well, we want to kind of segue into the topic today, which we're going to be talking about the general history of Freemasonry within Scotland. But before we do so, we know that you are acting in the role as the curator for the Grand Lodge of Scotland. Could you run us through what is a typical day like in your shoes as the curator? Um, right. Well, what's typical? Uh, that's actually extremely difficult uh, because <laughs> every day, I guarantee every day is different. Um, First and foremost, I suppose, I, mean, I actually think about a typical day. First and foremost is uh, answering emails. Um, there's usually a considerable number of emails. And for anyone who hasn't had an answer yet, by the way, uh, please bear with me. Um, I presently have an excess of uh, 3,000 unread emails. Um, and so uh, the chances of you getting a, a very quick answer are pretty slim, I have to say. Um, so being one of the oldest Grand Lodges in the world and also being uh, the, and, and I say this in order to provoke a subsequent discussion, um, uh, being uh, a, 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 someone who comes from the country where Freemasonry originated, 
um, well before 1717 um, means that we get lots and lots and lots of inquiries from all over the world um, as to the origins, history, philosophy, etc., etc. So that takes up a substantial amount of time. To add to my burden, um, I'm not sure if that's really the most appropriate word to use, but uh, what we did uh, at Grand Lodge um, two and a half years ago was we launched um, our Facebook page. And that was an experiment. Uh, I have to say that uh, as an experiment, it's now become um, established. It's an established function. So after emails, it's uh, onto Facebook dealing with uh, comments to uh, recent posts and dealing with uh, messages messages coming through Messenger. Um, Facebook has been perhaps a bit uh, almost overly ambitious in that uh, we try and post at least once a day um, and that is uh, sometimes difficult to maintain but so uh, as you can gather by now um, the internet is is a is a very substantial part of of my working day, and I try and deal with all of that uh, in the morning, first thing in the morning, and then uh, what usually happens is we have visitors uh, after that, uh, visitors from all over the world, and we live in a a day an era of uh, budget airlines, uh, cheap airfares, and of course we are also. Uh, I'm in the situation where uh, the pound, the pound sterling, isn't doing terribly well against other currencies, so uh, Scotland is now a very uh, cheap place to visit compared to 10, 15 years ago. So we have a very large influx of uh, your countrymen from the United States, but also very, uh, very substantial numbers coming from Europe. And the third, uh, the third effect, the third cause is what we're calling the outlander effect where um, lots of uh, uh, TV, cable TV um, films and programs are being made shot in Scotland about Scottish themes and that is also uh, raising the awareness of Scotland and of course a lot of Freemasons are interested well you know what Scotland got to offer from a Masonic point of view so that, that usually takes me up till about lunchtime. Um, thereafter, you know, um, anything can happen. Uh, we we have a very very busy uh, Grand Lodge, although it's quite small uh, in in terms of other Grand Lodges. Um, we have, um, we're, we're in fact we're simply very grateful that we have lodges in in excess of uh, forty other countries. So this is a product of you know the what we call the itchy feet syndrome uh, of the Scots who have kind of trotted around the world sometimes with a with a very uh, purposeful uh, gait uh, to to look for a new uh, a new and better life or um, quite often just because they wanted to see what was around the next bend or over the next hill and so wherever they ended up um, you know they would we have a saying in Scotland that wherever Scots settled in numbers. The first thing they would do would, uh, when they settled would be to build a kirk. The second thing would be to build a bank. The third thing would be to build a pub. And the fourth thing almost certainly was uh, to build a Masonic Lodge. Now, whether it was actually in, the, in that order, uh, we're not sure. But certainly those four features were a very common feature of uh, Scots expats, wherever you went in the world. Um, and so for that reason... Um, the Masonic lodges and Scots generally have carried uh, Scottish culture all over the world and when I say culture that, that's an, a completely uh, huge uh, um, subject in its own right but they have carried uh, Scottish uh, culture and particularly for our purposes Scottish Masonic culture all over the world and so a lot of people have become aware that Freemasonry, Scottish Freemasonry is a very different beast from Freemasonry that exists anywhere else. They are fascinated by it, and because of the very different uh, esoteric uh, philosophy of uh, Freemason, Scottish Freemasonry, they are attracted to it, and that sustained uh, these Scottish lodges uh, all over the world. And of course, many of them uh, still exist. 
uh, even although they are they're now under the jurisdiction of other grand lodges. So if I can remember further down the line, that might also be something worthwhile touching on uh, later on. But that uh, that kind of gives you an idea of, of uh, what I do in the early part of my working day. The rest of the time tends to be taken up with the usual bureaucratic stuff, uh, dealing with committees, uh, Grand Lodge uh, itself, meetings of Grand Lodge, and all that kind of thing, which um, may or may not be boring. It depends on the contents, I suppose. So there you are. So that's a very, very rough idea of a, a typical working day for me. Well, wonderful. I, I know uh, it sounds like you stay busy, and you're talking about you've been off for this extended leave, so... I can imagine you got a fair amount to catch up on. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> so now one very interesting point you touched on, uh, you're talking about how Freemasonry originated in Scotland. And as we're segueing into our main topic of the history of Freemasonry, uh, would you mind to delve into the early uh, history of Freemasonry in Scotland? And we'll kind of go from there. Sure. Well, the, uh, what uh, there's a phenomenon, just as, as uh, we're talking in, in, at the moment, and that is, of course, we are, we are celebrating the 300th anniversary of uh, the first Grand Lodge. Now, it's important to differentiate uh, between a Grand Lodge and Freemasonry. Indeed. Grand Lodge. Yeah. So grand, a, a Grand Lodge is merely a head office. Um, it's a, a bureaucratic edifice. Uh, used to administer lodges and uh, the members of those lodges. So although it's, a, it's an important event, it is, in my opinion, merely one step uh, along the way in the history of Freemasonry. And so um, my particular interest is not, I have to say, in um, the formation of Grand Lodges, but in the origins of Freemasonry, not the origins of Grand Lodges. And uh, I think some people, I mean, don't get me wrong, the pomp and circumstance of, of a 300th anniversary is thoroughly enjoyable. Um, but uh, from a historian's point of view, from a historian's point of view, it can be rather a distraction. So what tends to be obscured because of that um, pomp and ceremony is uh, uh, the factual information that exists in Scotland regarding uh, Freemasonry. Now, here we come to an essential problem, which is uh, definitions. Um, if you go to someone um, anywhere in the world, indeed, and said to them, uh, who built Rosalind Chapel, for example, then almost immediately the answer would be, or almost certainly the answer would be, um, the Masons. And, of course, when you say to someone, who are the Masons, then, of course, the automatic answer is nearly always, well, you're talking about the Freemasons. The situation in Scotland is quite unusual because we have two types of Masons historically in Scotland. One is Stonemasons and the other is Freemasons. So this is, this is where the seeds of confusion are sown. So what I'm going to tell you about initially is the organization of stone masons lodges in Scotland. And this goes back to uh, 1475, when the stone masons um, of Edinburgh in particular were recognized as being uh, an, an official body, an official civic body, which was incorporated into the town political system of Edinburgh. Now, that incorporation, as we called it, is somewhat similar to an English uh, guild. Not quite the same, but similar. Now, this incorporation of stonemasons um, had certain rights and responsibilities. The responsibilities were um, to negotiate with uh, employers, quite often the city council, but almost certainly the church, um, uh, negotiate wages negotiate uh, apprenticeship periods, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so uh, for us, the, the interesting part is what they got out of it, if you like, and what they got out of it, apart from this kind of political recognition, was the fact that they were um, made responsible for looking after a particular aisle 
in St. Giles Cathedral, and this was the aisle that was dedicated to St. John the Evangelist. Now, that meant that not only did they have to uh, keep it clean, um, and maintain it, pay for the candles, uh, make sure that the priest said masses um, for the souls of deceased members, and so on and so on, it also became the place where they held their annual meeting for uh, business purposes, essentially. And in those days, they would only meet once a year. And of course, that would be on the feast day of their saint, which was um, St. John the Evangelist. And that feast day is on the 27th of December every year. Um, and that uh, is a very interesting point that I'll leave just for the moment, but we'll come back to later. What, uh, what happened thereafter was that uh, that meant that the stonemasons of Scotland were recognized, but were not, were not, almost certainly were not very organized, but they were recognized as being, um, having some kind of economic and political clout, not, not enough to become in any way dominant, but they at least had a voice at local, at local level, at the city level. Um, so in that sense, they were a part of wider society. We know very little about what they were doing um, after um, they were officially recognized until we get to the very late 16th century. And what happened was then was that in the royal court, it was decided that uh, an individual had to be appointed to look after all the uh, property that was owned and used by the royal family. And this individual was uh, by the name of William Shaw. Now, William Shaw um, was appointed the master of works to the king. And as I said, he was responsible for looking after all the buildings. Now, he was appointed in 1593. This means that he was in direct contact on, on a daily basis with stonemasons and thereby uh, their lodges. We're very blessed here in Scotland with a lot of written records signed by William Shaw, signing off accounts to make payments to stonemasons for work that he had ordered them to carry out. He was a, a, a typical medieval civil servant. And it's pretty clear that he found this kind of very loose, disorganised system of stonemasons' lodges scattered across Scotland uh, to be somewhat inefficient. And he decided that things had to be put on a much more formal footing. And so he wrote what we now call the Shaw Statutes. And these are the first regulations um, directed at lodges for conducting of business and uh, the statutes themselves contain lots and lots of wonderful information, but for our purposes, it's sufficient to say that they had. Uh, he was directing them as a civil servant to get their act together, and to make sure that things were running smoothly. And I can understand why, because a more efficient workforce meant that his job was that much easier. And so, you know, he was, you know, not only wasn't completely altruistic, there was a little bit of uh, selfishness involved there. However, for uh, the early, the very early history of Freemasonry, the effect was dramatic because by formalizing the existence of a lodge and requesting or demanding, not requesting, but demanding that they do certain things, particularly keep written records meant that that's why the oldest written lodge records in the world appear in Scotland from immediately around that period. And so we have um, in Grand Lodge the oldest uh, written minutes of a lodge, which is of a lodge called Aitchison's Haven, which used to be just down the coast from Edinburgh, on the east coast, and their minutes begin on the 9th of January 1599. Now, that lodge doesn't exist anymore. It ceased to exist in 1852. But probably the oldest lodge records in the world of a lodge that still exists um, are those of the Lodge of Edinburgh, bracket Mary's Chapel, close brackets number one, and their minutes commence on the 31st of July, 1599, and they are continuous to the present day. That is, no breaks, no uh, missing minutes, 
there is a continuous record from July 1599 right up until present. Now, we know that there were other lodges in existence at the time, like Mother Winning, um, other lodges scattered around Scotland, but unfortunately, written records from that very early period no longer exist. Now, I think I'll pause there, if nothing else, just to get a, 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 a catch my breath, because there's a huge, <laughs> amount of, a, a huge amount of information I've just inflicted on, uh, on your, your view there. But you can begin to see, just from what I've said, things were happening in Scotland from an extremely early date. Um, and to a large extent, what we have inherited from that is a system of lodges. And it's the system of lodges that fascinates me. No grand lodge, of course, but a system of lodges all doing more or less the same thing because this individual, this civil servant, William Shaw, demanded that they do so. Anyway, gasped for breath. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is indeed quite the, uh, the bit of proud history that you guys got going on there. Now, Getting into Freemasonry, how quick was it that you really realized your passion for the history of this and that you wanted to pursue this as uh, really your studies within the craft? Well, yeah, I mean, I, my my problem was um, in trying to understand, well, why why is it that stonemasons, Freemasons are being considered uh, so in, in such a specialty? Um, because there were, there were other trades that were also incorporated into the uh, city political and economic system. So you had uh, Baxters, which is Scots for bakers. You had Robsters, which again is Scots for weavers. Um, you had uh, butchers, barbers, all these people, all these groups, um, essentially trades. Um, they were all recognized as being essential to the economic well-being of the city. So, you know, they also had a very similar status to that of stonemasons. My uh, puzzlement came around from, well, why is it that the stonemasons, freemasons, were considered to be so important, whereas the others were not? Now, from a Masonic point of view, this, this comes, um, it, it comes into very clear focus when we compare the stonemasons with all these other trades and then corporation or a guild, if you like, was essentially um, a a bureaucracy uh, that was expected by the city elders to look after the affairs of their trade to make sure that nobody uh, stepped out of line, basically, and everybody was trained properly, that wages were uh, were not excessive, all that kind of thing. The problem with the stonemasons was that their incorporation included other trades Uh, not dissimilar from stonemasons but you had other people involved in the construction industry like glaziers um, uh, carpenters that kind of thing they were involved in the incorporation the other trades like the bakers and the butchers and all the rest of it were exclusively for people from that trade so this presented a big problem for the masons because with their esoteric secrets, and remember these other trades also had esoteric secrets special to their particular trade, the difference with the stonemasons was that they couldn't communicate those secrets in the incorporation, thereby allowing non-stonemasons to hear and witness um, how those secrets were transmitted from one generation of stonemason to the next. So unlike other trades, the other incorporations, the stonemasons decided that they would have to have something special and separate in which only stonemasons would be allowed to become members and only within that organization would they be allowed to transmit esoteric knowledge. This extra organization was, of course, the lodge. And that's um, why Scottish stonemasons are unique from any other trade in that they had two organizations. One, the incorporation or guild, which was the public face of the trade that everybody knew about. There was no big secret about it. The lodge was secret. 
and it was only for stonemasons. And so that kind of element of secrecy was built in right from the start, whereas the other trades didn't need it because there was no need to keep what they were doing secret because everyone was either a, a baker or a butcher or a barber. So this creation of a two-tier organization, uh, one of which was secret, raises some very interesting questions indeed. William Shaw and his statutes were sent to lodges. Now that is very, very strange because if you're sending instructions that are relevant to how stonemasons are to conduct their business as stonemasons, apprenticeships, wages, etc., etc., you would send it to people who had the clout to enforce the regulations. He didn't send them to the incorporations, he sent them to the lodges, the secret part of the organisation. And therein, I think, we get a clue as to what he was up to. He was uh, reading the, the Shaw Statutes very carefully. He was endeavouring to make the stonemasons of Scotland uh, incorporate, if I can use that word in that way. And he was endeavouring to make sure that the stonemasons uh, internalised the lore of the craft within the lodge, not within the incorporation, the incorporation, of course, as we've just said, uh, included people who weren't stonemasons. The lodges were exclusively stonemasons, so that's where the lore of the stonemasons' craft had to be remembered and perpetuated. And that's what I think that was all about. Now, to me, that is the embryonic uh, uh, beginnings of masonry, uh, w lying within the trade of stonemasonry. That contrasts completely um, with what was happening elsewhere in the world where there are no records of stonemasons whatsoever until much, much later. And the Scots, since had any influence on that, um, we don't know. It's actually unlikely because Scotland is a relatively small and isolated country. And so this sort of knowledge and method of doing things would be pretty much to themselves. Um, there, is a, there is very definitely an effect um, later after the, uh, the Union of Parliament in 7, that is when Scotland became politically unified with England um, and lots and lots of Scots moved to London and it, therefore in, in my opinion it is surprised that within a decade um, of that union and that uh, mass immigration of Scots to the south of England, it's uh, n no coincidence that uh, that's when the first Grand Lodge appears um, in London, following that big influx of Scottish stonemasons from much further north in Ireland. So you can see that uh, there's a lot of meat here. We are still um, dealing with the 16th century. We haven't even crept into the 17th century yet. Um, <laughs> and so uh, this is, I mean, it's a nice problem to have, but it's a, it is a problem that there is so much information relating to this very, very early period of Freemasonry that it's very difficult to, even in a, even in a lengthy interview such as this, it's extremely difficult to give you a lot of what I would consider to be necessary information. So essentially what I'm telling you about at the moment is a very brief uh, resume of um, the whole story. Um, and as I say, we haven't yet crept into the 17th century. So another quick pause for breath if you don't mind. <laughs> Not a problem at all. Right. Freemasonry obviously has such a magical history behind it. I know that's one of the things that really drugged me in as soon as I got in the door. You know, right off the bat, it was kind of the lure of, you know, what is this Freemasonry thing? But mm. you get into it and you see those proud roots that go back so far. And there's yeah. just something about that that demands your attention. Um, so hearing about it going that far back uh, just really leaves me in awe. And I think a lot of people that are invested in this show and what we are interested in are really in the same boat with that. So we're appreciating everything that you have put into the craft to be able to present this information to us. Yeah, okay. 
Well, I suppose the next part of the story um, relates to what happened immediately after the Shaw statutes um, were issued. And here it's important, I mean, we know these things because the Scots typically would write things down. And they were, they were you know, great record keepers. Um, why? Well, um, when it comes to Masonic records, I think we have a clue. I mean, Shaw demanded to keep written records. Um, but the, there was a the great tradition of recording transactions, uh, contracts, and all that kind of stuff. But what Shaw was doing, as I said, was writing to the lodges. And when the lodges received, and he sent this, the same document to every lodge in Scotland, many of them pasted these Shaw statutes into minute books. And these minute books still exist. And so we have this wonderful situation of not only do we have the instruction to keep written records, but we then immediately have the written records. So it's a, a, a wonderful um, piece of uh, evident historical evidence that, that we can follow. But that raises a, a rather curious um, problem because most of the stonemasons of this period were illiterate, or at least semi-literate. Um, and so asking them to keep written records was a bit odd, shall we say. Um, and I suspect we know part of the answer, and also one of the uh, nice, neat steps following that, is that if you are illiterate or semi-literate, but you have someone who's very senior to you telling you to keep written records and telling you, well, if you can't write them down, you will find someone who then immediately you're having to go outside of the lodge system to have someone record your written uh, transactions, your written business. The present theory is that the lodge would have a, a secretary who's in charge of a book, um, who after every meeting would have to go to a lawyer or a writer, as they're called in Scotland. He would take them to this writer, lawyer, and ask him to record the salient points of the meeting. And that's why we have uh, records of the entrance of apprentices um, into the lodge records, uh, people being made fellows of craft. The names are all recorded, but not necessarily written by a member of the lodge. So what's, what's happened as a consequence of Shaw's instruction is that someone outside of the lodge, the secret lodge, has got knowledge of this secret organization. Interesting. And that, yeah. And so that is probably the first indication we've got of external uh, uh, interest uh, in the lodge. And we know that fairly soon, certainly by uh, the 1630s, the lodge uh, was admitting uh, people who were not stonemasons. Um, that, uh, again, this is trying to get some kind of continuity of, of, of this is a bit difficult, but as we've touched on that, I'll, I'll finish that kind of point. The people who joined the lodge in 1630 onwards, who were not stonemasons, were therefore um, the, very obviously the first speculative Freemasons, because they have no connection to stonemasonry whatsoever. There is another point, I'll try and come back to it if I recall to do so. Um, however, that means, and we all know of this individual's name, Elias Ashmole, who is quite often claimed to be the first speculative Freemason in the world, because he was initiated in a lodge according to his diary, not according to lodge records, but according to one entry in his own diary, he was initiated in the year 1646. He's not the first speculative Freemason. He's not the second, or the third, or the fourth, or the fifth. He's actually the eleventh speculative Freemason in the world, wow. because by that time, yeah, by 1646, ten non-stone Masons had been admitted into Scottish into a Scottish lodge. Therefore, uh, Elias Ashmole comes along. Along quite a lot later. So these individuals who were admitted prior to Elias Ashmole were um, uh, aristocrats and members of the professions. Anyway, I need to skip back to finish the story about William Shaw because sure. we'll, we'll skip forward a few decades. <laughs> but William Shaw, 
William Shaw um, is issued his statutes, but he's not finished yet. Um, we think, and I'll explain why shortly, we think that he had uh, much grander ideas um, for the stonemasons of Scotland than merely uh, getting them to formalise their lodge meetings and lodge affairs. Um, and we get this because in 1601, he, he wrote a letter to William St. Clair of Roslyn asking him to become the patron and protector of the stonemasons of Scotland. And as well as him signing uh, that document and the signature and uh, his title are given in that document and, and are identical to those on the Shaw statutes, um, they are also signed, that document is also signed by master and wardens of several lodges um, in Scotland. Unfortunately, the right-hand corner where the seal would have been on that document um, has been torn off. So I suspect there were quite a few more lodges and signatures uh, mentioned in that missing portion. But we know then that this is William Shaw trying to do something more than just have a national organization of lodges. He is looking for one individual to head up the organization. Now this has led quite a few popular authors to conclude that this must be the first grand master um, ever um, of any kind of lodge system in the world. That is, uh, that's a, a grave error, to be honest. Uh, when you read the document uh, carefully, it's very clear that this is a letter, and you could almost say it's a begging letter. It's a letter by stonemasons looking for someone who's going to become the arbiter of their internal disputes. Now clearly um, I suspect that if you needed someone who's going to arbitrate in, in um, internal disputes and in, in internal disagreements, um, the stonemasons were a pretty, pretty argumentative bunch. Um, <laughs> but um, it was certainly cheaper than having to go to court to have your problems resolved. So uh, William Sinclair was not going to get paid for this. He was going to have the nice title of patron and protector. Um, unfortunately, he was never able to actually fulfill the function in any event. But you can see from my point of view, or from the, the Masonic historian's point of view, that William Shaw was aiming for even more than just what he had uh, said in the Shaw statutes. Very unfortunately, the year after he'd written this letter to William St. Clair, uh, he passed away. He died in 1602. Mm. Um, so we will never know, unfortunately, whether he had any further plans, um, whether he had any grand plans for any kind of grand organisation. We'll know, never know, um, but we can speculate. And I think because he was so interested in this this organisation, this lodge system, we have to guess that he had more than just a, uh, an economic uh, efficiency um, desire. He was of a stature um, that he did not have to get involved with these people at all. He, uh, to be honest, uh, these were what you would call the Dirty Hands Brigade. They were ordinary working guys, semi-literate at best, why on earth was he going to all this trouble? Well, we can only conclude that he found that what they were doing was of great interest. Why else? Why else? To be fair, he may have just been a very, very good man and was trying to make sure that these rather underprivileged uh, individuals uh, had, had the best organization that he could, he could make. But you get the impression from reading the words that he uses in the Shostakovich that he found what they were doing to be of great personal interest. And unfortunately, I don't think we have time for this, but there is very, very clear indications that William Shaw was a practicing hermeticist, interested in all sorts of esoteric knowledge at the time. Um, and there are very clear indications that he was trying to embed personal hermetic philosophy within the stonemasons' lodges. Really? And I, yeah, 
And I, I think we, we can conclude that not only from the Shaw statutes themselves, but from his personal activities within the royal court of James VI and uh, his, uh, his queen, Queen Anne, who, uh, he, to whom he was chandler, um, and he was also the, um, the keeper of her sacred ceremonies and all this. So you can see there's a lot of esoteric stuff bubbling around here. Now, Scotland at that time was a pretty dark and dismal place, socially, economically, but that didn't mean to say that human beings were trying to strive to understand the world they lived in. And I suspect, strongly suspect, that William Shaw and some of his court were striving to understand the world that surrounded them. And that is, in my opinion, the great thing that he has passed to the stonemasons and in terms of, look, this is one way of looking at the world. I'm not saying it's necessarily the only one, but it's the one that I'm personally interested in, and I'd like you to think about um, using it to benefit yourselves, to try and improve yourselves, to philosophize, to use in your ritual, and all kind of stuff. See, unfortunately, he died in 1602, so we can never be sure. But there are certainly hard, hard evidence from the statutes, and there's a great deal of circumstantial evidence from the records surrounding what was going on in the royal court. Making it even more fascinating, the year after Shaw died in 1602, the royal court um, essentially upsticks to London. This was because. Uh, Queen Elizabeth I had passed away, and the crown then passed to her, to her nephew, uh, Mary Queen of Scots' son, James VI, who then became James James of England. And the royal court of Britain then moved to London, and if, as I strongly suspect, James VI of Scotland, the first of England, been educated in hermetic thought. Here we have a very intriguing possibility that the first king of Britain um, was educated by a hermeticist, and what is more, a hermeticist of the first order. Wow. Um, yeah, so you can see why I'm really interested uh, from Dorian's point of view that the hidden history of my country. Um, what, I mean, it just fascinated me. I mean, you could read any number of academic books about the history of Scotland, and this kind of stuff is simply never touched on. And it takes a little bit of teasing out. And in some ways, it's rather sad, I have to say, that all this kind of um, uh, con all these conclusions come from Masonic Lodge records, and they're only uh, this information is only contained within these Lodge records, and the and the academic world has essentially ignored their existence. The fact that they could be used to build a different history of Scotland um, uh, just seems to be unimportant to them. But even then, I mean, these are important social documents because of the, the names that people, uh, the names of people being recorded, their activities, their places. So there's more than just a general history of Scotland here, there are all sorts of different strands that could be pulled out. Social history, economic history, even even geography can uh, come into play here. But as I say, the academic world has uh, simply not picked up on this, which is rather sad. Thank so, William, yeah, so William Shaw um, is dead. Uh, the king, who would have had some knowledge of his activities, um, has moved to London. Um, but the lodges continue to exist in Scotland. Now, this must have caused them a problem because guiding light, William Shaw has gone, um, the royal court has gone, there is no real focus of power for them, they have got no patron and protector, William St. Clair of Roslyn has run away to Ireland, um, so they're left, they're left on their own. So what do they do? Well, William Shaw left them a wonderful legacy. He left them the Shaw statues. And these Shaw statues were so important to these lodges that they had included them and added them to their lodge minute books, their, rec their written records. 
And that's what guided the Scottish lodges for the remainder of the 17th century. And we can see that because they kept these written records when a lodge was founded or came into being, they immediately started to keep written records. What seems to have happened is, of course, inevitably, because there is no one individual saying, you're afraid from rule number 20 back in, get back in line, they began to drift in terms of local custom and practice. And so when we find that, you know, a stonemason's lodge that rigidly applied Shaw's statutes remained very much the same kind of lodge that existed in his time. Other lodges drifted further away and started to admit people who weren't stonemasons. And that gets me back to this point about these uh, ten, first ten speculative Freemasons. If you became, when you became an entered apprentice, that simply meant, um, in Scottish stonemasons' terms, that an apprentice was his, or apprentice's name and to whom he was apprenticed was entered into the lodge records. So he, that's where the term entered apprentice comes The apprentice was entered into the lodge minute book. He, he was entered into the lodge at the age of 14. That was the age everybody, all the other, the other trades were the same, was the age that you began your apprenticeship. The ch childhood was a very short uh, period in one's life at that time. You became an apprentice at the age of 14. You served your apprentice for seven years and you became a fellow of craft. Then the Lord's records again, you became a fellow of craft at the, the age of 21. And we know uh, in the Western world that the age of 21 was for many years the age of maturity, the age you got the keys to the door, etc., etc. So you see exactly why in some ways an apprenticeship would last seven years because you, it took you to the earliest year you could be considered to be a, a, a full-fledged adult, someone who's 21. However, this is where we go back to our ten speculative bureaucrats, uh, etc. You couldn't expect them to come along to a meeting and be made an entered apprentice and then be told, well, come back in seven years and we'll make you a fellow of craft. And this was, oh, these aristocrats are not going to stand for that. So there was a problem. You could imagine that if you were a stonemason in a stonemason's lodge, and some outsider suddenly came along and got the degrees of entered apprentice and fellow of craft all at the same time, I wouldn't be best pleased. Excuse me, I would think. I'm a member of this lodge, I'm a stonemason, and I've got my fellow of craft degree yet. Who are these characters to appear on the doorstep and get both degrees all at once? It's not right. But not even stonemasons after all. But, of course, the Scots had an answer for that one. The answer was, well, they made them pay, pay through the nose for the privilege of getting all the degrees at once. Yeah. So people who were not stonemasons had to pay a substantial amount more than stonemasons. And I think that was how they got around that particular problem. We now know, and again, this is simply a matter of looking at the lodge records, we now know that many lodges um, became mixed lodges um, during the 17th century. Um, the class example I will mention is the Lodge of Aberdeen, um, which was formed in 1670. Uh, and in that year, um, a role of members was produced, and 20%, slightly under 20% of all the members were stonemasons. So most of the membership were actually non-stonemasons, and these include, included dukes, Earls, marquises, lords, professors of mathematics, ministers of religion, um, and also much humbler occupations like college makers. Wow. <laughs> yeah, all in the same lodge. So you can see that there's two, there's two consequences of this. One is for our Masonic history, where you can see that the egalitarian nature of craft today was already in existence um, well before the existence of any Grand Lodge. So you have 
great and the good, in fact, not even just the great and the good, but the ultimate power, uh, powerful people of the land were in uh, an environment where hard people were illiterate. Uh, so, and this was this really opened in, within these lodges, and so uh, there must have been an attraction for the non-Sword Masons to join these lodges, and in fact, there must have been a considerably more than an attraction, there must have been a fascination, an obsession almost, to the point where they came to dominate these lodges, and again, to the point where you've got lodges where there are no stonemasons at all. The classic example of that is the Hotfoot Lodge, which came into existence in 1702. It was founded by many of the landed gentry, and there was no stonemasons involved whatsoever. So this this appeal of Scottish lodges to non-masons become very powerful indeed. There we go into the 17th century, and the question must be why? Why were they so interested? We'll never know. I don't think for sure because very very few people wrote about their interests in in that sense. But if you were someone highly educated as most of the aristocracy were, they were educated in Latin and Greek and all this kind of stuff, and yet you had this bunch of um, ordinary working guys who were the only ones that could build build churches, castles, palaces. Um, How could they do that without any kind of education at all? And I suspect part of that uh, was the reason why these people joined the Stonemasons' lodges just to try and find what they knew. What was it that they had? What knowledge did they possess that allowed them to such magnificent structures when the outsider, the extremely well-educated aristocrat, didn't have a clue how to build anything? So what was it that the stonemasons had that nobody else had? As well as that, we, we can't discount uh, an element of voyeurism uh, where slugging it with your inferiors might have been an attraction as well. Having said that, I don't think that that was a prime reason because, as I say, they came to dominate lodges and and the, and the stonemasons were squeezed out. So they took over lodges and they made, made the lodges their own, if you like. And so there was much more to I think, than that. However, we then have to ask, well, what is it, what was it that they were doing? And I think my time must be nearly up, is it? Um, I want to sort of we are getting a little late in the hour, but if you want to go ahead and finish up, and I, I kind of wanted to inquire, there is so much information here. If you'd actually be willing to come back on for another interview to kind of pick up where we left off. Sure, sure. Uh, right, so what we'll, we'll, we'll do is we'll wrap we'll this up, um, I think, in the sense that um, get to the very early part of the 18th century, where you have a national network of lodges from the north of Scotland to the southwest to the southeast. They all seem to be doing pretty much the same thing, but they have local differences. And these local differences are uh, not terribly important uh, in the scheme of things, but it looks very certain that their ritual was, there are variations in a ritual. There were certainly variations in their uh, regalia and all the rest of it. So what happened, and this is again the beauty of for me, is that the differences, even on a national network that we're all supposed to be doing exactly the same thing, when the Grand Lodge of Scotland was founded in 1756, they were allowed to continue their local customs and practices. And so that's why if you come to Masonic Lodge in Scotland, you will find every lodge has got its own colour. And what's more interesting to the likes of me is that every Scottish Masonic Lodge has the right to devise its own ritual. Wow. There is no standard ritual in Scotland. So on that point, I think we'd probably pick up on another, uh, another interview at a later 
That is quite mm-hmm. the uh, the mic drop to leave it on. So I hope everybody is uh, intensely awaiting the next time we have you on to uh, pick that conversation up and delve a little bit deeper into that. Um, but for now, I do want to hand it back over to you um, for any final comments or plugs um, on any uh, books or anything you'd like to advertise, and then uh, we will wrap it up for today. Sure. Um. Gosh. I. I. I'm really not. I'm. I'm after all these kind of personal sort of matters, I don't. I wish a secretary who could deal with all these things. But if you're in in old news, you can always look at my website. That's robertldcooper.org, um, and you'll get a list of some of the stuff I've done over the years. But I have to say it's pretty out of date because I've been too busy with the Grand Lodge Facebook. <laughs> so if you if you're interested in in reading a lot of history snippets of information about Lodge history, uh, Scottish Lodge history, Scottish history sometimes, all that kind of Masonic, good Masonic stuff, have a look, uh, go to Facebook, um, search for Grand Lodge, the Grand Lodge of Scotland and you'll come across our Facebook page, um, no problem at all. Um, and that's probably the best sources I can, can suggest that you look at. Um, in terms of other ongoing things, uh, what we'll probably try and do is I'll try and pick up a later date when I get back to you of a bit more uh, a bit more of a polished delivery of such matter for you. Okay. Not a problem. We'll make sure we have those links and everything available on the site so all of you can uh, easily uh, get access to that. And uh, we want to thank you, Brother Cooper, for coming on the show and sharing that deep passion you have for the history of the craft. Uh, it definitely radiates through your words, and we are deeply appreciative for all the work that you've done in the craft and for coming on the show today to share that with us. So we eagerly await to have you on the show again and pick up where we left off on this great history from Freemasonry over in Scotland. Okay. Well, thank you for inviting me on to the show. Great. Thank, thank you. you, brother. You take care. We'll talk to you soon. Sure. Bye for now. All right. Well, I hope you guys are enjoying that so far. I do apologize for the uh, video quality. Like I said, we had a bad connection with Skype. We're at the mercy of technology. Just not a whole lot we can do about that. Uh, but the information behind it is great. So that does conclude part one with the interview with Brother Bob Cooper. Uh, definitely keep your eyes out. We're going to have him back on very soon to continue that conversation with part two and hopefully we get a little better video connection for that one but for now we're going to uh, direct you guys over to the Facebook group that is the Historical Light Masonic Research Group on Facebook and you're going to need to go there to both partake in the conversation for today's episode and to get your name on the list for the giveaway now the giveaway is going to be a package of several uh, historical light items uh, it's our way of saying thank you we love you guys and we really appreciate uh, your support and keeping us around so if this goes over well we'll do some more in the future here um, but go there submit your name and we'll get you on the list and we're going to be doing that giveaway uh, later this week we'll probably give it a few days to let some names build up and then we'll do a random draw and uh, send out a prize package to the lucky winner. So thank you guys so much for all your support and keeping us around. It is sincerely appreciated. And that wraps up episode 20. So like I said, hit us up on the Facebook group to get in on the conversation and submit your name. And we will see you there until next time when we continue our quest for historical light. Take care.